Well, as I mentioned last week, I had missed a few weeks. Some of those planned, some were not planned. And it was after our vacation that was planned that I had a really high fever for three or four days. Now, it's debated in my home how high this fever was. My wife did not think it was that high. I thought it was extremely high. Let me argue my case. My resting temperature on a normal day is somewhere in the 96 range. Most people are 98.6. I'm about two degrees below that. So when I have a fever, I'm always adding two to that because that makes sense to me. So my temperature was 102, and I kept telling my wife it was 104. And she says, it's not 104. I'm like, honey, do the math. I mean, if I'm at a normal 96 and, and 98.6 is normal for, for people, if you do the math and figure it out, then I have a really high fever. We had some, some back and forth about that. I was really sick in my, in my mind. And it wasn't just that it spiked for one day. It was that it was day after day after day. And I just felt like this was never going to end. And so I told my wife, I said, honey, tell me some things I already know. I'm talking spiritually here. I'm like, just I was just in a place where I needed to hear some good news. I said, honey, tell me some things that I already know. So she said... God loves you. Ah, oh, washed over my soul. God is in control. Yes, God has ordained this. Yes, God has purposed this for your good. Oh, yes. I need to hear things that I already know. And right now, I want to tell you something you already know. It is assumed that the good news that we call the gospel in the New Testament is to be repeated to Christians over and over again. It is assumed. In fact, when Paul writes to this Roman church who are Christians, he wants to tell them something they already know. In fact, if you turn a couple pages back to chapter 1, in Romans 1.15, he says... So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now the you he's referring to here are the believers. So what Paul is saying is, Christians need to hear the gospel. I'm going to come to you and preach the gospel to you. And the gospel is more than just that message that gets us into the kingdom. The gospel is that message that sustains us throughout our sojourn here in this wilderness. So what Paul does when he writes this magnificent letter to the Roman church is he works out all the details of the gospel. What is the gospel? Why is it good news? What happens in the future? What is our new position before God? And along the way, he has to answer objections that people are going to have. If you read through Romans, you will see all of these objections. He'll say, well, some of you will say to me, dot, 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 dot. It's all through the letter. And one of the areas, one of the common objections that he knows is going to come up is, 
how does God forgive guilty people and still remain good? How is God just in forgiving the guilty? If God declares guilty people as not guilty, or even more than that, if he declares them as righteous, how is God not then guilty of sin himself? Now this is a dilemma that is important for you to understand, and the answer is found in the very gospel itself. First, let me establish a, an obvious truth, I think, for all of us, but just the fact that God does forgive the guilty. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That probably is a familiar passage to you. As far as the east is from the west. What kind of transgressions? Well, little transgressions, big transgressions, all transgressions. Let me give you another one. Isaiah 1, 18. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Or Isaiah 43:25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins no more. So we know that God forgives. This is probably the most well-known characteristic of God, at least in the Western world, is that God is a forgiving God. People may not know much about God, but they know at least that He forgives people. Usually to the point where they believe He's just going to overlook their sin. So God forgives, but this begs the question, how does God do it and still be righteous? And so that's the dilemma that Paul wants to explain in this early section of Romans. This might not sound like a dilemma to you. This is not a dilemma that keeps your unbelieving neighbors up at night thinking, how is God going to forgive? But this is a problem. And let me try to help you understand using a human example. Let's say someone very close to you very close to you was the victim of rape. This event devastated this woman's life. It was not only an attack on her person, but it left years of emotional damage. Years of nightmares, years of irrational fears, years of fear of the dark, fear of public places, fear of strangers, a kind of paranoia that she carries with her always. And after a couple years of living this nightmare, the perpetrator is apprehended and found to be unmistakably guilty. The DNA is a match. 
His cell phone records put him in that area at that time. There is no question about the guilt. And upon his sentencing, the judge shocks everyone by declaring that the man is being forgiven by the court and he is free to go. And even more than that, he is declared as an upstanding citizen in the eyes of the law. Now, is that good? No. Is that just? No. Thank you, Richard. It was rhetorical, but I'll take feedback. <laughs> no, this would rightly be perceived as a great injustice. This is an evil in and of itself. And yet most people, listen, most people believe this is how God forgives. You have broken God's laws. You have been shown to be guilty, and yet God is going to overlook those great evils against him and against your fellow man. And this is the prevailing idea in the world. God is going to overlook those things and pretend that they did not happen because he's so loving and so merciful. And there are a billion people, at least in this world, who are banking on that. That God is just going to overlook those things. And add to that, they don't believe their sin is that bad anyway. They look at rapists and say, well, God's going to get those people, but he's not going to get me. I'm just a liar and a thief and a blasphemer. If the truth be told. So people are banking on God overlooking their sin and I want to be absolutely clear today, God never forgives sin that way. Never, ever, 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 ever. Sin is an expression of evil, and evil must be punished, and God will and must uphold justice always. Otherwise, he becomes a sinner himself. He's like that judge who let the rapist go. Okay, So this is a divine dilemma. And this, in part, is why we have Romans. So let me give you a summary before we get to our main text. Chapter 1, Paul says, God has made himself known to all people. Creation is the evidence that God is. So everyone is accountable. Chapter 2, he turns toward those religious people and says, Don't think you're off the hook because you have God's law. God's law does nothing but condemn you. It just shows that you're guilty. So religious people don't look at those irreligious people and say, Oh, God's going to get them. No, God's going to get you too if you're clinging to that law to justify yourself. And then in chapter 3, he puts a nice big bow on everything and he plainly declares all are under sin, Jew and Gentile, all fall short of the glory of God. Now, this is important to start this way because unless you know of the disease, you're not going to seek the cure. Unless you hear about the bad news, you're not going to embrace the good news. So this is where the dilemma begins. If everyone is guilty and God is just, then everyone should be condemned. 
Or if God does exonerate some, how could he possibly do that? Now, if you have Romans chapter 3 open, I'm, this, is, this is jumping into this argument here. Paul is now shifting from everyone being guilty to these very important words in, in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, this is a big shift. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, just pause right there, just a historical footnote. Martin Luther said this was the centerpiece of not only the book of Romans, but of the entire Bible, what what Paul says right here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now stop there for a minute. Paul reminds the reader that all are guilty, but that God has done something remarkable in that he puts forth Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, as a propitiation. Does anyone in this group know what that word means? Substitute. Substitute. That's very close. Anyone want to take a stab at it? Satisfaction of divine wrath is more specific. So in other words, God puts Jesus forth as a way to satisfy his wrath against sin. Why did he do that? To save sinners? Yes. To reveal his mercy? Yes. But there's another reason. Continuing in verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Meaning he didn't punish people when they sinned. He's letting humanity go their course. He's not striking people dead when they transgress his laws. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, what is the answer to this divine dilemma? How is God just in forgiving the guilty? It is the cross. God's answer is the cross. God has made a way to punish sin... And at the same time, justify the guilty. He does not overlook sin, nor does he condemn all of humanity. He makes a way to declare the guilty as righteous, and does so to satisfy his perfect justice and demonstrate his great love. It's the cross. 
God takes human sin upon himself in the person of Jesus. Now notice how concerned Paul is about God's righteousness. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Verse 26. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. Now, most people want God's forgiveness, but they are not concerned about how God forgives. But Paul was greatly concerned how, because he knew that God cannot compromise in the areas of His holiness and justice. God cannot circumvent justice. Well, people say, but He's God. God can just forgive the whole world's sin and He can do it because he's God. No, he cannot. God will never go against his own character. God will never practice sin because he's holy. God is never going to circumvent justice because God, as an attribute of God, he is just. So Jesus on a cross demonstrates the righteousness of God. He doesn't pretend sin doesn't happen. He doesn't just arbitrarily forgive. He punishes and condemns sin. Now, God punishing sin still does not make people righteous. You could say Jesus died for sinners and that makes them not guilty by taking away their sin. But it's righteousness that they need and it's righteousness that they do not have. This is why Jesus had to be perfect. This is why Jesus had to live 33 years of obedience to God the Father in thought, word, and deed, and he could not just show up and die. He had to live a perfect life of obedience that satisfied all the requirements of God so that Jesus, as substitute for sinners, could give that righteousness to those people who don't have it. And so his sin, or his sacrifice, takes away the sin. His righteous life imputes righteousness to the people. And that is how God does it. It is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus in place of sinners that makes the forgiveness that God gives righteous and not unjust. Paul says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There it is again, righteousness. Why did God put Jesus forth as a substitute that we who believe might become the righteousness of God? This is not some kind of legal fiction. This is not some kind of trick in the mind of God where he knows we're all guilty and he just forgives us. 
This is God taking your sin and punishing Jesus on the cross so that it is forgiven. So that it is punished. Jesus earns the righteousness that sinners need and he suffers and dies to endure the wrath that sinners deserve. And how does one receive this? How is this life and sacrifice credited to my account? It is remarkable. It is not by you cleaning yourself up. It is not by you starting to keep God's commandments. It is to be received by faith. Meaning God is giving it out freely. And all the sinner do must do is to turn away from his sin toward Christ by faith to receive this gift. Now Paul continues to lay out that argument in chapters 4 and 5 and he knows what people are going to say in response to that. He knows the objections people are going to have. Does anyone want to take a stab at it? What objection might someone have if I say God declares guilty people as righteous by faith? What's the argument that you hear sometimes? Anyone? If that's the case, then let's just keep on our life of sin and we got our ticket punched and we're going to heaven, baby. I hear that so often. And Paul knows people are going to argue that. And so, that's what chapter 6 of Romans is all about. Those who have been given the substitute in Jesus have also been given a new life. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. We are not just mentally agreeing with God about Christ. We are turning from sin. And when we put our faith in Jesus... He gives us His Spirit so that we might live in relationship to this God who has declared us as righteous. Paul describes it as being, we were formerly slaves of sin, and now we become slaves of God. God's plan was never only to justify the guilty, but it was to make people who are dead in sin alive to God so that we might live a life of holiness in relationship to God. God didn't redeem a people who just continue on sinning like a criminal who's been set free to go and commit more crime, but we actually have been given a new heart so that we desire to be like Jesus himself. I have one more text in Romans I want you to turn to, and that's Romans chapter 8, and then we'll wrap up. Romans chapter 8. Paul is very concerned about righteousness, and so we're going to see that one more time, but this time it's about our righteousness. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life 
has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. We talked about that. Why did he do it, Paul? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is the plan of God. Not only that He's going to declare guilty people as righteous, and He does that righteously through the sacrifice of His Son, but that you now become a person who can fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law. Not by every day going through the Ten Commandments, but by faith being led by the Spirit of God. So God makes us righteous and gives us a desire to be righteous. Now, does anyone know what the righteous requirement of the law is? Huh? Perfection. Perfection. Interesting. Not the answer I was looking for, but thank you. So, uh, on a theological level, the law must be kept perfectly for God's standard to be met. But that's not the argument Paul's making here. But your answer is correct in a different place. What is the righteous requirement of the law that's fulfilled in us? What does God require from us? Faith, true. Walk in the Spirit. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a hint. How did Jesus describe the law of God? He broke it down into two pieces. Love God, love your neighbor, right? If you love God and love your neighbor, that is the fulfillment of God's law because every part of God's law points to one or the other. The whole first five books of the Bible that we call the law, all of those details, all of those laws about your neighbor's ox or putting a, a fence around your roof and things like that, it all points to either loving God or loving your neighbor And that is the righteous requirement of the law. And so we have been given the Spirit of God and have been made in a right relationship with God and we now are able to walk in that which God requires, which is loving God and loving your neighbor. The law was powerless to accomplish this. The law was incapable of accomplishing this. The law could only show us we were guilty. It did not change our hearts. It did not give us righteousness. It did not give us a hunger and desire to do what is right. But God does this through His transformative work, through the gospel, that we are made righteous with God in Christ by faith. So in conclusion... How can God still be good and forgive the guilty? 
The answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, God demonstrates his perfect justice and he demonstrates his abundant love and mercy. This is good news for the unbelieving world and this is good news for you, the church, to hear over and over and over again. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial, sin-atoning death, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And not only that we have a transactional kind of forgiveness, but that we have been given a desire to live for the one who has saved us. And I trust that is everyone and their desire here today. And I ask, Father, that if there are any here who do not have this transaction that God has given to sinners, if anyone has not experienced the new birth, been given a new heart, walking in the righteousness that God provides, oh, that you would graciously do that today within them, Lord. That you would be mighty to save and that you would do it even now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.